coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, designing buildings and cities for climate change. We are really testing the limits of the performance of these buildings that traditionally were constructed to deal with a predominantly cold weather. We have an aging infrastructure. This is, this is something that we have to address for the billions of people that live now in cities and that will live in the future. New research shows how extreme heat can affect cognitive performance of young adults. And in this week's episode, researchers say that the new findings highlight the need to design buildings and cities that can adapt to our changing climate. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. Extreme heat can have severe consequences for public health and is the leading cause of death of all meteorological phenomena in the U.S. And climate change means our world is getting warmer. 2016 marked the warmest year on record for the past two centuries. But the issue isn't limited to warmer temperatures overall. Climate change will lead to more extreme weather events, such as intense heat waves. And in this week's episode, we're talking about how our buildings and cities should be redesigned to deal with this threat. My name is Joe Allen. I'm an assistant professor here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm also co-director of the Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. My name is Jose Guillermo Cedeño Loran, and uh, I'm an associate director of the Healthy Buildings Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We'll be talking with Harvard Chan School researchers Joe Allen and Jose Guillermo Cedeño Loran. He goes by the nickname Memo, which you'll hear during the episode. And they recently led a study examining how extreme heat can affect the cognitive performance of young adults. They found that students who lived in dormitories without air conditioning during a heat wave performed worse on a series of cognitive tests compared with students who lived in air-conditioned dorms. The findings are important because they show that the effects of extreme heat are not just felt by those typically thought of as vulnerable, such as the elderly. They also underscore the need for sustainable design solutions in mitigating the health impacts of extreme heat. And that's what Alan and Laurent are aiming to do through their work with the Healthy Buildings Program at the Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. I began my conversation by asking them what inspired them to look at the effects of extreme heat on cognitive performance. Usually we see that uh, the newspapers, the media grab the, the, the uh, very uh, extreme uh, outcomes of a heat wave like mortality and, in, and rightfully so. It's, it's very important. But uh, sadly enough, uh, we don't do anything to uh, uh, change the real cause that uh, we think it's climate change. So. Uh, in order to address that, we wanted to understand what would be the effects of a heat wave in a population that we normally consider uh, immune to these effects. And uh, young, healthy individuals uh, living in uh, uh, buildings uh, was the perfect opportunity, buildings with and without air conditioning. And so the idea is that, and I think we're already seeing this, but as the climate changes, we're more likely to see more extreme weather events. So it could be heat waves, it could be snowstorms. So is this a way of showing the potential effects of climate change going forward? Is that kind of one of the goals here? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at just this past week in Boston, we all experienced that major heat wave. And like Memo just said correctly, I think a lot of times we think about these extreme effects and they are important and real, but this is what shows up in the newspaper. And what most of us probably don't realize is that there's these subclinical effects happening. And this study looked at the impact on cognitive performance. So instead of thinking about maybe the dozens or hundreds of people uh, affected, it's actually millions of people. It's all of us. And so you talked about looking at cognitive function. So can you describe a little bit about your method with this study and how are you actually measuring the effect of these heat waves on cognitive function? So the, the study methods that we use are 
uh, pretty simple. Uh, the, uh, these cognitive tests that we use have been uh, uh, validated widely, and uh, uh, they are, uh, for the first time, uh, as, as long as we know, uh, used in a field study during a heat wave. So one is a color word test, or known as a Stroop test, and this one uh, asks uh, the participants to identify the color of a word shown in a screen uh, as fast as possible. And this becomes uh, especially uh, difficult when the color of the word and the word shown is mismatched. And uh, we used another uh, uh, validated uh, tool that is an arithmetic uh, test, uh, adds and subtraction, and we measure how fast uh, people respond to these answers, but also how accurate. So how many correct answers per minute a, a, a participants are able to answer these things. So it's reaction time and uh, a way of uh, measuring accuracy. And so then what did you find in terms of the results of these cognitive tests in terms with the students who are in the air-conditioned dormitories versus those not in the air-conditioned dormitories? So the results uh, were that the students uh, that don't have access to air conditioning were slower uh, the, than those with air conditioning in both tests. And also they were less accurate. They were able to respond uh, less uh, uh, correct answers per minute in both tests. So uh, it was very, uh, pretty consistent. And uh, it's, it's also something that has been reported previously in uh, experimental studies. So in many ways, this is uh, just confirming uh, uh, what other studies have done. But this time, what we think it's uh, special about this study is that we were able to do it following uh, a heat wave. So we're able to follow the different temporal and spatial patterns of the exposure to heat. Uh, that is that is something uh, uh, not, I would say noteworthy about our study. And so I wanted to ask about that. Did you see at all, for example, that as the heat increased, that the responses may have been slower? Uh, so is there a link between the actual temperature outside and then the results of these tests? More than the temperature outside is the temperature in the spaces, in their bathroom. So this is also a departure for the from the uh, uh, most of the body of uh, literature that is based on epidemiological studies that use outdoor temperature for uh, as, a, as their uh, marker of exposure. So uh, in this uh, study, we were able to characterize the indoor environments uh, very thoroughly. So we measure uh, temperature, relative humidity, carbon dioxide, which uh, we know thanks to uh, research from uh, our group, uh, it's also uh, one of the exposures that uh, determine cognitive function uh, and uh, uh, noise. So uh, by doing this, we have uh, not only the measurement of temperature, but other um, environmental parameters that could affect uh, cognition. If you think about what Memo said there, what's really interesting in the study, I think, is that the study design had four or five days before a heat wave. Then we tracked people during a heat wave and then followed them after the outdoor heat wave was declared over. And if you think about this in terms of temperatures, right, leading up to the heat wave, it was seasonable, maybe 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Indoor temperatures similar for both air-conditioned and non-air-conditioned dorms. Then when the heat wave hits, temperatures go up to 85, up to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. The air-conditioned dorms stay comfortable, right? Like you'd expect, that's obvious. But the indoor temperatures for the non-air-conditioned spaces get up to 85 degrees also. The most interesting part, I think, is that after the heat wave ends, in terms of outdoor heat wave, temperatures drop, air-conditioned dorms, temperatures stay cool, the indoor temperatures for the non-air-conditioned spaces stay hot. It's what we call an indoor heat wave. The temperatures stay up. So even after this all clear is declared, you don't see it on the news anymore, you don't see a heat wave, heat alert anymore, or heat advisory, indoor temperatures can still be really sustained uh, at a high level. 
And so it's interesting you went to that because I feel like I even noticed that in my own house, you know, it was really cool and comfortable the other day, but I noticed that in my bedroom, I had the window closed and it was really steamy in there. So I think that's one of those things people maybe notice happen, but to actually have the data to draw that link, I think is really interesting. Sadly, also, uh, climate change, it seems to be happening right now. So uh, these unprecedented levels of temperature allow for these natural interventions that are uh, truly uh, 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 occasions that have never been presented before. So we are really testing the limits of the performance of these buildings that traditionally were constructed to deal with a predominantly cold uh, uh, weather. So uh, uh, this is this is new for all of us. And... Uh, uh, Talking about what uh, Joe said before, uh, this is something that will uh, uh, be the experience of millions of peoples across the world. We have an aging infrastructure. This is this is something that we have to address for the billions of people that live now in cities and that will live uh, in the future. Well, your your experience is exactly right. A lot of times we think we're in the field of common sense, right? We're doing studies, we're quantifying what we all know and experience, but the real, the physics behind it is that in a lot of these older buildings, like Memo said, is that they have a high thermal mass or a potential to hold and absorb and store all that heat that they gain during the day. Well, during a heat wave, when it doesn't cool at night, there's no chance to re-radiate that heat. So the energy in the system just builds up, builds up, builds up, and even when it cools out, or cools off outside, and to your experience, you still walk into that building and it still feels warm. Well, that's all that embodied energy that's been stored up in the materials in many of these northern climate buildings that are built with things like brick and concrete that have a high thermal mass. I would make emphasis on the night period that Joe just mentioned, because during the day we have the opportunity to sh uh, look for shelter in malls, in other places that have air conditioning, but at night we're really limited in those options. So uh, most of the times that is what has been seen to be the predictor for thermal deregulation, right? We decompensate as uh, the heat wave goes on and on, we start to be sleep deprived and this becomes like a cumulative exposure, so to say. And so you talk about sleep deprivation. Is that one of the potential mechanisms of why this extreme heat affects cognitive functioning and other maybe other mechanisms at play? There are there are definitely plenty of uh, uh, mechanisms, potential mechanisms. We try to evaluate sleep. We did it through uh, uh, some mediation analysis, which is uh, we acknowledge limited because of the size of the of the study. And nevertheless, we found uh, uh, a, a small but significant effect of uh, uh, sleep. Uh, meaning that uh, temperature affects sleep and therefore sleep affects the cognitive effects that we saw uh, on the students. And so you talked about the sample size. I think it was it was 44 students. And so is one of the goals in the future maybe to find another natural experiment such as this with a large group of students? Definitely. Uh, not only students, but other populations, another set of uh, health endpoints. So right now we are uh, looking at cognition, but uh, we have to be cognizant that in order uh, for us to have a better control of temperatures in indoor environments, we also have to consider other uh, activities that we perform indoors. And, you know, we repeat over and over that we spend 90% of our time indoors and we basically perform all the activities possible in these spaces, right? We learn, we work, we even love and sleep in this environment. So there will be different uh, ways of catering uh, to these physiological needs. And uh, that uh, speaks about temperature, but also about other work that I, I hope uh, Joe um, uh, uh, talks more about on uh, how we're looking at this uh, uh, opportunity 
of uh, changing our uh, build environment towards a more sustainable build environment, uh, uh, promoting health. And we are going to talk about that, that 90% is going to come up later in the interview, I promise you. Uh, I do have some questions about that, but just a couple more questions about this particular study. Can, can you explain for people the significance of the fact that these were findings in young adults, in people who we would typically think of as young and healthy, and maybe you wouldn't think of them being as much affected by the heat? So what's the significance of these findings being in young adults and college students? So I think the, the findings are uh, provocative, and uh, we think that uh, this could have uh, a lot of uh, a larger implications. It's a message for, for uh, the general population that these people that we consider very resilient to heat exposures, we are measuring the effects in them. So uh, the question is whether uh, we can uh, identify these effects in uh, other sectors of the population, and these might be uh, even bigger effects. So for example, uh, the research of another colleague of ours here at uh, Harvard, Jason Park, found the cumulative effects of uh, uh, heat in learning. So they followed, uh, they, they used a massive data set of performance in uh, PSAT uh, tests, PSATs, uh, and uh, uh, they found that uh, for every degree Fahrenheit higher during uh, of uh, uh, outdoor temperature throughout the academic year, uh, there's a, a one percent decrease in the learning of uh, students that don't have air conditioning. So I feel like students are going to hear this and say, "See, you should add ACs to the school and add ACs to the dorms." So what is the takeaway? You touched on the idea of broadly we need to rethink how we're constructing buildings for climate change. But in the short term, is this the kind of thing where you think that schools should consider maybe adding air conditioning, uh, adding air conditioning to the dorms? What's the takeaway there? You know, this work is under the broader lens of the Climate Change Solutions Fund. So it's all about solutions. And the solution can't just be more air conditioning, right? So it's a multi-pronged solutions that are needed. This is everything from decarbonizing our grid, more energy efficient air conditioning, it's the smart use and ventilation and heating in so-called smart buildings. So we're ventilating and cooling and heating where and when it's needed. Uh, it's next-gen refrigerants. And it's even things that Harvard is pursuing on the Austin campus like district cooling. So it has to take into account all of these, uh, all of these tools that are at our disposal to address this problem, not just you know, pumping more air conditioning. And I would, I would just say that uh, we would never think of uh, if we have a chronic headache to just keep managing it with uh, a, a painkillers, right? We, we have to go to the doctor. We have to. We're putting really the the finger on the on the wound of what is the the most uh, pressing issue, and that is climate change. So we need to address that uh, before we start like just fixing these small uh, uh, items. And to carry that analogy a little bit further, it seems like what you're finding is that this is just one symptom of climate change in general, right? So I did want to talk about, you talked about this idea of, and Joe, you talk about this a lot, that we spend 90% of our time indoors. And you have this concept called building nomics. So can you talk a little bit more about what that is more broadly and how is the work you're doing um, focusing on optimizing buildings for health? Yeah, so this study fits in uh, to a larger body of work we're working on this entire healthy buildings team a really talented group i think of postdocs doctoral students undergraduate researchers and our framework is this building omics idea and we released two years ago this report called the nine foundations of a healthy building and that is simply a summary of the 40 years of scientific evidence to date on how the indoor environment impacts our health so that's our health our ability to think clearly our ability to be productive one of those 
nine foundations is thermal health, and that's what we're talking about today. But it's just one of the nine factors we're looking at. So you can look at our all of the work we have going on campus, in schools, in offices around the world, trying to distill what's the optimal uh, combination of these factors to promote health. So we're not always chasing or responding to so-called sick buildings. It's how do you optimize a building in the first place? And I'll tell you what we're doing on our own campus uh, just this year around the nine foundations of a healthy building. So we're starting to work with Harvard Business School to say, not just here's what the science says, but how do you implement this? How do you put the nine foundations into practice? And with one of our doctoral students, we're doing that. So we're working with the Harvard Business School. We've identified a couple buildings over there and we're talking with them and monitoring and optimizing their environment around all of these nine foundations. So it's not just research for research's sake, it's not ivory tower, it's really, let's put this into practice and really help people uh, in their spaces that they're working and living. And so for these nine foundations, there's actually a great graph of this, and we'll put that on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. But for people who aren't familiar, in addition to thermal health, what are those foundations of a healthy building? Sure. So you can go to our, our website and look at the graphic. It's at ninefoundations.forhealth.org. But we think about air quality, ventilation, and thermal health. Then I think of the water-related ones. That's water quality, drinking water quality, and moisture in a building, it's, which is critical. Uh, controlling dust and pests. Uh, working on lighting and views. Acoustics and noise. And then last is safety and security. And so what we've done in this report is in really uh, an executive summary style, two pages for each, we say, you know, what is thermal health? What does the science say about how this impacts our health? And of course, it's all fully cited back to the primary literature. So that, so that we're working from, uh, where we're working from is really grounded in the hard science that says, this is what the science says. And in our opinion, there's plenty of science enough to act on. And then that's what we're doing right now at the business school and even with some companies saying we have the science, let's act on it. And then we'll verify and show that that actually led to improved performance of the indoor environment. And so I wanted to ask about companies because we actually just did a podcast on the Culture of Health Initiative, which is focusing on businesses and health. So are you finding that businesses or construction companies, engineers, are they receptive to this work and they're saying, okay, yeah, we need to rethink how we're organizing projects in order to build healthier buildings, like you said, not just to to fix sick buildings, but build healthier buildings going forward. Uh, So is the industry companies responsive to this kind of work? There's no question that this transition is happening. If you see the so-called green building movement over the past 20 years, that's a lot of focus on energy, waste, and water is now transitioning to a conversation around health. And we're helping to kind of steer that conversation. We see companies and CEOs of these companies come to us and recognize that the building can be part of their strategy to promote health. And importantly for them, we have shown through our other research, the economics work out for them. So you, when you make these decisions around a healthy building, it's better for the occupants in terms of their health, but it actually benefits the bottom line of the company. And we see this uptake of the science uh, in many different sectors, big pharma, uh, many of the big banks, commercial real estate around the world. So uh, there's, there's, there's um, an obvious move towards uh, this big opportunity when we focus on people's health, and it fits right in line with what's happening here in terms of the Culture Health Project and that big MOOC that just happened. I know Gina McCarthy of Sea Change always talks about climate change and making it personal, and it seems like this work that you're doing is really aligned with that. Uh, so how should we be thinking about the built environment, whether cities, buildings, et cetera, in the context of climate change? So I think uh, there's a, a clear uh, signal across the world that uh, CDCs were the war on climate change is being fought. 
uh, and we think of buildings as the actual battle battleground. So this is a, a scattered battle, battleground, but it's how strategically we can tackle the problem. So at the unit basis, something that is intimate to us, the places where we uh, uh, that determine our health uh, to an extent, uh, probably more so than our physician, right? Where uh, Joe always talks about this, uh, we uh, go to the doctor and uh, make uh, do a checkup every six months, every year, but we go every single day to the places that either makes us sick or makes us thrive. I'm sure people listening to this are probably wondering, okay, are there things that I should be doing in my own home to make it healthier? Uh, There's the buildings. On some level, you're at the mercy of your office building as an employee, but are there things that people can do at home that can have a measurable impact? It's a great question, and we get this one a lot, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a hint of where we're going next, right? So the Healthy Buildings Program is at forhealth.org. We think that's the big frame, right? Building for health. Cities for Health is our new project, and what we have coming uh, soon is going to be Homes for Health. Because we keep getting this question, we know the similar science is there, but it's sitting on the sidelines. It hasn't been put out in these uh, in something that's tangible and actionable. So our team is working on that right now, and early in 2019, we plan to release what we call Homes for Health, which would be exactly this, simple science behind why your home influences your health, your ability to sleep, your ability to think, and then practical steps you can take room by room. How you clean it, how you manage it. Uh, should you really uh, cook without uh, opening your windows or turning on the the fan uh, on your uh, hood, uh, your kitchen hood? So uh, simple things that they really could make a difference. And as you've done all of this work and build up this body of research, I'm interested. When you walk into a building now, what is your reaction? Are you instantly looking up like, oh, nice natural light, you know, good ventilation? Does this change at all how you look at buildings now? Uh, for me, definitely. I mean, that's who I've been. That's who I am. I do it. I, I just I naturally look around. I'm in this place. But I tell you what we've been doing with class here at Harvard is we have this class of when I co-teach on healthy buildings. And half of the class is, you know, fundamental lectures. But each class, we try to get out into real buildings. We take the students out and you can see the progression over the course of the semester that, you know, at the end of the semester, when they walk into a room, they're doing the same things. Where's the air coming from? What's the lighting like in here? What are the views like? What are the odors you detect? You smell musty. So, uh, you know, you can see this. Once you start learning about it, it's hard to ignore the science uh, when you walk into your kid's school or you walk into your own home and you look around with some fresh eyes and realize that maybe there's some things you're doing that don't quite match what the science says we should be doing. And the exact quote from one of our students is, I will never look at buildings at the same way after taking the class. So it, it, it really happens, yeah. And so just a last question again to, uh, to mention Gina McCarthy. I know she often talks about getting involved locally, and that's one of the best ways to make an impact. So I just wanted to ask you, because you had talked about schools, for example, so for people who are concerned about their child's schools or even their workplace, uh, do you have any advice for getting involved, ways to affect change, ways that people can make an impact based on the science that you all are producing? Well, I'd say certainly for schools, I can address that because you won't be surprised. We have a report called Schools for Health that details all the ways that the school building influences student health, student thinking, and student performance. And we found, we've heard back from people that's been a really helpful resource because when they want to approach their school or their district and say, what does this evidence say or what should we be doing? It's helpful to have this report from Harvard that, that's based on all the peer-reviewed science that says why this stuff matters. And then so you're able to affect change on a local level once you're armed with all of that hard data on why it matters. Well, I would say that uh, we are uh, very vocal. We are uh, spreading this message uh, 
in every single forum that we get invited. And even uh, to, in those forums that we don't get invited, we'll look for an invitation to speak. Yeah. That was my conversation with Joe Allen and Mae Mulloran. As they mentioned, you can learn much more about their work by visiting forhealth.org. We'll also have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And thanks for listening. A reminder that if you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It'll help other people find the show.